Mr. Trichet, uh, distinguished guests, students, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, let me welcome you, Monsieur le Président, and all of our distinguished visitors today to a, to a lecture which many of us have been looking forward to for some time. It's a great honor to be here as chairman of, of the Board of Governors of the London School of Economics to welcome a man who everybody holds in very, very high esteem uh, to deliver the Stamp Memorial Lecture. Uh, and uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, the president of the European Central Bank, is particularly welcome amongst those of us who have a great belief in Europe and European integration. The lecture has been held in the memory of Josiah Charles Stamp, who is an alumnus and a former governor of LSE. Uh, after his death in 1942, a trust was set up jointly by the Bank of England, the London Midland and Scottish Railway, ICI, and Abbey Road Building Society to pay for the uh, annual memorial lecture which we will hear today. And I'm pleased that representatives of these organizations or their successors are with us. Many distinguished uh, figures have delivered the stamp lecture. The last two were Ben Bernanke, uh, our head of the US Federal Reserve and Nobel Prize winning economist George Ekerlof and we're very pleased therefore to have Jean-Claude back at LSE to deliver this year's lecture. He last spoke here I think in 2005 on the topic of monetary policy and credible alertness and I'm eager to hear what he's going to say today at a time of crucial importance and indeed great danger in terms of the global economy and in particular the challenges which face uh, Europe, the European Union and the Eurozone. He was of course appointed President of the European Central Bank in October 2003 having held various positions in the French government including Director of the Treasury and serving as Chairman of the European Monetary Committee and for two terms as Governor of, Bank, of the Banque de France. In 2010, he became chair of the European Systematic Risk Board. He has provided essential leadership in this time of great difficulty. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Monsieur Trichet. But now, will you please join me in welcoming him to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled The Euro, Its Central Bank and Economic Governance. Jean-Claude. So, uh, dear uh, chairman, professors, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great, great honor for me to speak here at the London School of Economics. As you have said, it is not the first time. It's always a great, great privilege to be here. And I have always appreciated not only the capacity to deliver uh, a speech and a lecture, but also to respond to questions, which are always very <laughs> I have to say, to the point, in my memory. <laughs> so, um, the euro and its central bank, the ECB, are unique. The European single currency is the only major currency not issued by a single sovereign state, but by a union of sovereign states. Indeed, the European treaties specific a clear division of responsibilities between European-level 
policy making and national policy making. For countries that have adopted the euro as their currency, this implies that on the one hand, monetary policy is inherently indivisible, and in the euro area it is thus conducted at the supranational level by the ECB. On the other hand, fiscal policies remain largely the competence of national governments. And in this lecture, I would like to explore with you how the unique institutional framework of economic and monetary union in Europe has fared over the past 12 years, and I have to, to say, of course, particularly during the global financial crisis. As you know, the primary objective of the European system of central banks is to maintain price stability in the euro area. In the first part of my lecture, I will show how the ECB achieved this primary objective before, during, and after the crisis. I will also try to convince you that the economic performance of the euro area as a whole has been quite, I would say, encouraging over the past 12 and a half years. At the same time, we have to recognize that several individual countries in the euro area are facing significant challenges and that experiences during the crisis in different parts of the euro area have been quite diverse. In the second part of my lecture, I will address the uh, issue of economic diversity in the euro area and show that the euro area shares this characteristic of a large level of diversity with the United States of America, an economy and a currency area that is a natural reference point taking it into account the comparable size of the United States of America economy and of the euro area. And finally, the crisis has exposed weaknesses in the economic governance framework of EMU that need to be addressed urgently. I will close my lecture with some comments about what these reforms of economic governance framework should look like from the perspective of the ECB. Now let me start by the primary objective of the ECB. We have fulfilled our uh, objective in some way, I would say, to the letter. As you know, the ECB aims at inflation rates of below but close to 2% over the medium term. Average yearly inflation over the first 12 years of the euro are at the level of 1.97% on average. Uh, more generally, the degree of price stability that uh, has been observed in the euro area as a whole, the uh, say, I'm oversimplifying, the 17 countries and 331 million people, has been greater over the past 12 years in the euro area as a whole than in the individual euro area countries over the previous 50 years. Taking into account what was foreseen at the start of the euro, uh, the, more, uh, the most uh, frequent uh, comparison was you will do approximately as the weighted average of the compounding currency, and uh, you cannot expect uh, to uh, be able uh, to be up to the benchmark that you have, namely the most credible and stable currency. So I would say really that it is not small achievement. The ECB has faced, of course, as all other central banks, many challenges in pursuing its objective, the 
bursting of the dot-com bubble, the shock wave of 11 of September 2001, the volatility of commodity prices, and of course the uh, burst of the worst financial crisis the world has known since the Second World War. During the crisis, together with the other central banks all over the world, the ECB had uh, to operate in a very uncertain environment. And I would like perhaps to explain to you in more detail our monetary policy response uh, to the crisis. Uh, I have to say that uh, we tried to be alert uh, in 05. It was before the burst of the crisis. I had tried to explain our uh, concept of uh, credible alertness. We were alert from the very first day. We were one of the first central banks to react when the financial markets became abruptly turbulent in August 2007, taking action as swiftly as we could. Dysfunctional financial markets threatened to compromise our ability to guide the outlook for price stability by using only our conventional instrument, namely the interest rates. Faced with this situation, over all the years that followed the, the burst of the turbulent episode and the intensification of the crisis in uh, September 08, we have implemented a number of unconventional measures to ensure that our decisions on interest rates are transmitted to the whole economy, despite the problems observed in the financial sector and in capital markets. In particular, the major task was to allow banks, regardless of the level of the key interest rate which was designed to deliver price stability, to continue to lend to households and businesses. It is important to understand that we maintain a principle of strict separation between those non-standard measures that you see there listed and the conventional uh, measures. So we clearly said since the very beginning that we would do what we did before the burst of the crisis, namely designing our interest rates to ensure price stability over the medium term. The implementation of those non-standard measures and conventional measures that you have in front of your eyes are there to permit or help restoring the best possible, if I may, which is quite difficult in period of crisis, uh, monetary policy transmission mechanism and to try to be commensurate to repair the disruptions of monetary and financial markets and of specific segments of markets that might impede the overall transmission. As the crisis called for rapid and unprecedented action, we never lose sight of our main objective, namely to maintain price stability over the medium term for the benefit of the 330 million citizens of the euro area. And uh, I have to say that uh, uh, the governing council of the ECB considers that all monetary policy decisions that have been taken over the last 12 and a half years were aimed at fulfilling this commitment, either through the standard measures and the interest rate measure, or through the, I would say, measures that were designed to help restoring a more normal transmission mechanism. I have to say that uh, it is not easy, of course, for uh, 
uh, any central bank in the world to identify at an early stage the risks to price stability. To see it through, you know, I don't insist on that, that we are basing ourselves on a monetary policy strategy which is supported by several sources of information. We have the economic analysis we uh, undertake, which is enabling us to synthesize information on short-term inflationary pressures for a very large number of economic indicators. And we have also the monetary analysis that uh, we is the second pillar, if I may, one of the two pillars of our monetary policy concept, and we permit us to cross-check the information coming from the economic analysis with medium-term inflationary pressures that are drawn from the monetary and financial indicators with all the dynamics of the components and of the counterparts being analyzed. And we have, I have to say, uh, of course, started uh, these two-pillar concepts in the very beginning of the, of the euro, and we have enriched uh, quite considerably our understanding of the information which is coming from the uh, uh, monetary pillar. Let me say, on the, en passant, that we were considered extremely bizarre when we started our two-pillar strategy. I have the sentiment that with the benefit, if I may uh, uh, utilize that word, of the crisis, there is more understanding on the fact that having a larger scope of information and of analysis might be useful for monetary policy. The measures that we have taken, sometimes in the face of political pressures, uh, have, of course, uh, as I said, been all taken with a view uh, to uh, deliver price stability. And from time to time, we had to uh, uh, fight against or uh, take, a, take a decision without full understanding, uh, depending on the way you present it, of the executive branches. I only mention that en passant because it is not only by chance, of course, that you deliver price stability. We had uh, an opposition of the biggest country in Europe, uh, in the Euro area, namely Germany, France, and Italy. In early uh, 2004, they were asking us to decrease rates, and we refused to decrease rates. We had, uh, as you might remember, uh, a decision to increase rates in December 2005, and we had 10 governments out of 12 in the euro area, and I have to say a number of international observers which were asking the ECB to leave its key rates unchanged. Uh, and uh, they had a very good uh, uh, number of reasons for that, including, of course, uh, the IMF. But we conducted uh, our monetary uh, tightening, and I have to say that uh, there again, with the benefit of the hindsight, there was some kind of vindication of the decision we had taken at that time. Uh, when the crisis intensified in September '08, immediately, of course, uh, inflationary pressure subsided, and the uh, governing council decided in full accordance with our mandate to reduce our key interest rates. We cut the interest rates rapidly from 4.25% in October 8 to 1%. And uh, I have to say that, uh, not surprisingly, of course, because we had to cope with the worst 
crisis since World War II. I trust that it could have been the worst crisis since World War I had the central banks and the governments not taken appropriate decision, but it was uh, a lowering of interest rates, of the key interest rates, at a pace and to a level which was unprecedented uh, since uh, the Second World War in Europe. Here you have the uh, ECB policy rates. With the benefit of the hindsight, the decisions we took during the crisis were, again, I think, vindicated. And the main uh, and most important element I would like to underline was the solid anchoring of inflation expectations that we could maintain all over that period. Uh, uh, I trust that our determination to maintain price stability over the medium term has enabled us to prevent both the risk of inflation and the risk of deflation for, uh, from materializing. And let me uh, see there the inflation expectations only to, to see uh, and to compare with the United States, you see. We have the same scaling and the same three indicators, the five years break-even, the 10 years break-even, and the five years forward five years. There are a lot of reasons why uh, we have a solid anchoring of inflation expectations. A lot of them are also due, I have to confess, to the re relative rigidity of the European economy. But we were considerably helped, obviously, by this anchoring of inflation expectations during uh, all this period, which was extremely demanding, as we all know, including avoiding, again, as you see, the uh, materialization of an immediate risk of uh, deflation with inflation rates, uh, even at the peak of the crisis, uh, being uh, remaining uh, nominally positive. Now, with the uh, benefit of the insight, again, uh, this determination to maintain price stability has been, I trust, quite well understood by market participants, investors, and savers. With the recovery uh, now uh, more firmly established, we have seen in recent months upside risks to the outlook for price stability over the medium term. And again, the sharp increase in oil and other commodities has had a major impact on overall inflation. In these circumstances, the central bank, we trust, must prevent increases in the prices of raw materials from being incorporated in the long-term inflation expectations, which could trigger second round effects on wages and prices. It is against this background that uh, the Governing Council decided in April to raise interest rates. I stressed uh, in reporting that decision on behalf of the Governing Council that that decision had been taken unanimously by the Governing Council. And uh, I have to say also that this decision we took in April confirmed the separation principle I already mentioned, because at the same time we were increasing interest rates, namely the conventional uh, tools uh, that we have, we uh, also decided uh, to uh, maintain in the second quarter of this year the provision of unlimited fixed rate liquidity for uh, the one week, one month, and three months which we also did, by the way, last Thursday. We confirmed that we were maintaining these non-standard measures for the third quarter 
of this year, confirming again the separation principle. Now let me turn to the economic performance of the euro area. We trust, of course, and it's the reason why our primary mandate is price stability. It is trusted by the uh, European, the members of the euro area, that it is a necessary condition to deliver sustainable growth and sustainable job creation. I also trust that it is the way uh, central banks are looking at it. Uh, but in the short run, however, uh, some academic research suggests that there might be a significant trade-off between low inflation volatility and low output volatility. If prices are stable, economic adjustment has to occur through the real economic channel. It might therefore, in this view, be difficult to achieve those two goals at the same time, lowering the volatility of inflation and lowering the volatility of uh, output. You have there a chart which is interesting, I trust, because it shows that the area scores relatively well. We have al always to be prudent and cautious, but relatively well on both dimensions. This is, I have to say, a little bit puzzling because the er euro area has, and it is a big uh, negative of the euro area, uh, rigid product and labor markets, at least compared with the United States, probably compared with other advanced economy. The higher degree of price and wage rigidity in the euro area would suggest that output volatility should be significantly larger in the euro area than in the, most, the more flexible US economy. It is not what you observe here. If you look carefully at this uh, chart, you see where we were standing as regards the data from 1999 to 07, and you see uh, comparable uh, advanced economy, we have Japan, the United States, and the UK. Uh, as you might see, the UK was better than us as regards the uh, volatility of real GDP growth uh, in, uh, from, from 1999 to 07, and uh, we were uh, better uh, than uh, the uh, United States on both, uh, uh, I would say, dimensions. Japan was uh, exactly like us as regards the deviation, the, the standard deviation of uh, the annual CPI, and we were a little bit better uh, as regards the volatility of GDP growth. Now, if I take what has happened during the crisis, I see that, of course, we were all displaced uh, towards uh, more volatile uh, dimensions, significantly more volatile dimensions, as you see, but we behaved in this crisis Again, paradoxically, in some respect, uh, a little bit better, as I say, only a little bit better, as you see, uh, uh, than, than others. But the combination of the two makes us in a position which is uh, reasonably uh, uh, correct. And um, I have to say that, again, it is a puzzle, not only because it was already, already a puzzle from 1999 to but it's also a puzzle because it was a period where we had very, very dramatic supply-side shocks, which uh, are simultaneously exerting inflationary and recessionary influences, and we should have been, again, hampered by the uh, structural uh, negative that I was mentioning. 
So how can we explain this puzzle? How can nominal rigidities plus supply-side pressures not produce bad or worse macroeconomic out outcomes? I trust, and of course, it is an explanation I propose to uh, academia, and we are very cautious and prudent, but the strong anchoring already mentioned of inflation expectations in the euro area is perhaps one of the reasons why we are observing this relatively, uh, I would say, uh, correct uh, economic performance. Then I go back to the uh, anchoring of, of expectations. Again, in blue, the five-year break-even. In, ten, uh, in uh, green, the 10-year break-even. In red, the five-year-fold five-year, which is always much more stable and, I have to say, is for us the indicator which really counts because, as you see, it, is, it looks like uh, uh, much more uh, credible and, after all, it corresponds to this goal that we have to deliver price stability over the medium term, for us medium term, meaning medium long term. And I, again, I look at the uh, other uh, inflation expectations in the US. I don't trust at all that uh, we have a simple explanation. Again, the US is much more flexible. Prices can go down in the US uh, much more rapidly and impressively than uh, in the euro area. So we have to be very prudent and cautious. But nevertheless, we have something to explain, which is paradoxical. I really trust that uh, one of the explanations might be the anchoring of inflation expectations. Now, um, let me uh, look at other indicators that might be also useful in comparing the two economies in the advanced world that have more or less the dimensions, dimensions that are comparable. I, we are not at the level of GDP of the United States, but it is the same order of magnitude. And there you see the real output per capita. Uh, we all have in mind that the U.S. are growing much faster than Europe in, in general, much faster than all European countries. As you might see, since at least uh, the beginning of the euro, which is 99 on, on the chart, of course, uh, you see that we are very close, obviously, uh, and much closer than is suspected, taking into account, of course, that demographics are uh, much more dynamic in the United States of America than they are in Europe. So in terms of growth per capita, we are quite close, obviously, over the period. I would also mention the fact that it is not necessarily well known that employment growth in the euro area has also been relatively strong over the past 12 years. More than 14 million jobs have been created since the introduction of the euro, which is significantly more than in the United States of America with 8 million. And I don't say that to suggest that it is time for complacency in any respect. Unemployment at a very high level, very close to 10% of the labor force, is much too high. And structural reforms in uh, uh, Europe, in the euro area, in Europe as a whole, are of the essence to make uh, the European economy and the euro area economy much more flexible and to elevate its growth potential, which is also a problem for all advanced economy. I could put Japan on this very same chart. You would have approximately the same. The only difference is that Japan has demographics, dynamics that are even much worse than Europe, which are very worse than in the US. I don't deny for one second that it's better 
to have good demographics uh, than to have poor demographics. And it complicates considerably a number of uh, challenges, of course, to have poor demographics. But again, it's also uh, uh, useful to have an idea of uh, the dynamics of the growth per capita. Let me uh, mention uh, now, uh, to complete this bird's eye view, that uh, public finances in the Euria as a whole are relatively sound in comparison with others. Uh, the, the financial crisis has left its mark, of course, on uh, government deficit and debt in the Euria. Still, only for you to have the order of magnitude, at the end of this year, the euro area as a whole will display approximately minus 4.5% of public financial deficit as a proportion of GDP. In the US and in Japan, it would be probably in between 9.5 and 10. We will see the right figures at the end of the year. But the order of magnitude of 1 to 2 is the uh, correct order of magnitude. So you, of course, again, I mentioned the bird's eye view. Uh, now we have to look a, a little bit more precisely at what's behind. And one common belief, I trust, is that there you have an immense difference between the US and the uh, euro area, or Europe as a whole, which is that there is much less regional dispersion in the US across regions or across states than between the euro area economies. And I think that we have to review that, and to, which is not simplifying at all our life in the euro area, but we, we have to understand exactly what is our problem. When I look at the inflation indicators, I have there the unweighted standard deviation in percentage point in the 12 countries of the euro area, because I, I took those who started uh, uh, at the very beginning in order to be uh, blurred by uh, latecomers, and the uh, 14 uh, metropolitan statistical areas in the United States of America. You see, uh, of course, the, the run-up to the euro uh, was uh, dramatically uh, diminishing the uh, unweighted standard deviation in percentage point. But it is uh, striking to see that since then, there is no, apparently, uh, the visual inspection does not show that there is a big difference between the uh, two weighted standard deviation. We see during the crisis an in a temporary increase in inflation dispersion in the EU area, and it looks like it's been reversed. And it same phenomenon had appeared in the US in 2007. So we, we have volatility of this uh, indicator, but uh, it doesn't seem that we are in diff two different universes, if I may, which is a little bit uh, you know, striking. The picture is similar for the dispersion of GDP growth. Uh, you see uh, in both the euro area in blue, the US in green, uh, the dispersion of GDP growth we are oscillating more or less around 2%, and uh, dispersion rose somewhat during the crisis in both currency area, but remain broadly in line with pre-crisis level. Let's go one step further and investigate the sources of this growth dispersion in the US 
and in the Oeria economy. This reveals parallels even in the root causes of dispersion in economic performance. Both currencies areas comprise regions that experienced a significant boom and bust cycle over the past decades. Both also contains regions that are facing significant structural challenges of a more long-term nature. If I take Nevada, Arizona, Florida, and California in the US, for example, uh, experience, they experience increases in house prices that outpace the national average by a wide margin. Steep house price increases and the related performance, strong performance in real estate, construction, and financial services probably contributed to above average growth in these states. And some other states uh, in the US, uh, the former manufacturing powerhouses in the Great Lakes region in particular, saw a long episode of below average growth at the same time. Structural shifts in the US economy are very, very important, of course, as in all advanced economy, and um, they have uh, reduced progressively the value added of manufacturing relative to, to GDP with implications for a number of areas. So I will make a, a long story short. We have the same, of course, uh, uh, evolution in the uh, Euro area with uh, asymmetric boom and bust cycle, similar to those uh, just described in the US, and all taken into account, we uh, see uh, the dispersion of unit labor cost. I am making a very long story, short, as short as possible, but there I will surprise you. I will surprise you as I was surprised myself. Because uh, when we look at this phenomenon, there we have, uh, in the long run, and we start in 78, the unweighted standard deviation of uh, unit labor cost in the euro area and the US. As you see, since the setting up of the euro, we uh, look like, again, in this uh, dispersion analysis, we are uh, very much in the same universe. Now, there you will be surprised. These are the uh, ULC dynamics in the euro area with a number of countries uh, covering uh, the uh, euro area as a whole. And you see, since the setting up of, uh, of the euro, so the, the 100 uh, is in 98, and we start in the 1st January 99 to measure the differences in these uh, dynamics based upon the 100 in 98. Now, that, this is the euro area. Let me turn to the US. You have there Oregon, California, Arizona, Alaska, Kentucky, Florida, Ohio, Louisiana, Nevada, Michigan, Idaho. Of course, it's a little bit difficult to put absolutely all the more than 50 states uh, in the same chart. But you have there an idea of what is also observed in this very vast single market with a single currency which is the United States of America. And again, this has to be analyzed. This has to be, uh, uh, I would say, examined through all possible angles. But I think that what we can deduct from that is that it looks like it is a characteristic of a very vast single market with a single currency of the order of magnitude of 300 million people or more 
that we have under our eyes. It is not that one economy is more homogeneous than the other. It is that in both cases, you have to run a vast economy where you have very, very important dispersion. And I mentioned already the dispersion in growth, the dispersion in inflation. The dis there you have the dispersion in your daily cost. What is a little bit striking is to see that in some cases you have persistent uh, uh, differences. It is not only the oscillation around the average. Again, it calls for more analysis. We have there a number of states, uh, namely three, uh, six, uh, nine, eleven states, and we, we should uh, look at the full body of the United States of America. But again, we have a number of phenomena which are, uh, I think, very, very important. Now, let me say that uh, uh, the problem, the main issue which is at stake there is knowing that you have to run an immense economy with more than 300 million people and a large deal of different uh, economies which are in different situations, obviously, as are the states in the United States or as are the uh, countries in Europe, uh, how do you deal with that? And how do you organize your governance in order to take that into account? So as you see in this presentation, the problem of Europe is not that it has a handicap because it's much more diverse. The problem is taking into account that you are necessarily diverse. How do you govern this diversity? What, which kind of governance you have to introduce? It is, of course, in the case of the United States of America, a full-fledged political federation, which is uh, the governance of the economy of the uh, America of the United States as a whole, and so uh, you you see uh, well, uh, the message is no complacency for the euro area. But let's not make mistakes on the nature of the problem which uh, we have to cope with. And I would say that uh, we are, of course, in line with what we had said ourselves in the. ECB since the very beginning, namely that the governance framework was extremely important. As you know, we are on record uh, to have said that always that the stability and growth pact was the quid pro quo because we had not a federal budget or a federal institution and there we needed a framework for uh, the, the fiscal policies. Uh, we said that since the very beginning. I mentioned a number of countries that were not in line with that, <clears throat> and it's the same, uh, by the way, than those who were asking us to decrease rates uh, in uh, 2004, at the beginning of 2004. They were also asking for, uh, uh, if I may, weakening considerably the stability and growth pact. It was the big countries of Europe, and we were explaining tirelessly that it was not at all Appropriate. Of course, now, with the benefit of the hindsight, it's difficult to <laughs> understand how uh, one could have uh, argued so uh, eloquently in favor of, uh, uh, I would say, weakening the stability and growth pact. So, uh, not only, I have to say, we uh, are uh, uh, on record to have asked uh, constantly for uh, much more 
clout, much more biting uh, aspect of the Stability and Growth Pact. In the present uh, episode of uh, the negotiation of, uh, of governance, of economic governance and fiscal governance in Europe, as you know, we have uh, at the present moment a negotiation between uh, the Council, the Parliament, and the Commission in the, the so-called trialogue, and we are calling the members of the trialogue. I have to say we are counting particularly on the Parliament to go as far as possible in the direction of giving the sta Stability and Growth Pact as much, uh, I would say, clout as possible. Uh, faster and more automatic sanctions, enforcement tools that would be more effective. We are also on record to have asked the macroeconomic surveillance to be uh, improved considerably and uh, the unit labor cost in particular to be followed very carefully together with the uh, imbalances inside the euro area. This also is negotiated uh, in uh, the trialogue and we are uh, asking for the same kind of uh, of uh, improvement. I was speaking myself of a quantum uh, jump in the direction of uh, more uh, governance in this two <coughs> domain. Uh, this uh, domain of fiscal surveillance and macroeconomic uh, imbalances surveillance are the two pillars which we expect will take a very, very important, uh, 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 I would say, role in uh, the future governance. Uh, of, uh, of Europe. Uh, I could have mentioned, uh, but I have no, not much time because I know that uh, you have uh, very, already very gener generously allocated me uh, a lot of time, uh, Mr. Chairman. Let me only mention, of, co of course, that Europe at the same time has uh, introduced new elements in its governance of the, I would say, financial sector, surveillance of financial sector with the new three authorities uh, with the uh, European uh, Risk Board, the Systemic Risk Board, which has been created, which I, I chair with uh, Mervyn King. And uh, that, that is something which is important also, I trust. Uh, I noted uh, with uh, some satisfaction that the European could prove that they were as rapid as the other side of the Atlantic in uh, drawing some lessons from the recent uh, crisis. But I have no time to elaborate on that. In any case, it is, of course, work in progress. Now, let me conclude. I would say that uh, I concentrate there, as you see, on what should be done now and which kind of improvement of governance, which kind of quantum leap we could do now, taking into account that uh, the change of the treaty is not possible now. I trust that we can do a lot, and I trust that we must do a lot, and we are on record to call upon governments to do all what they can to make that quantum leap. The question, the issue of what you do tomorrow and what you do the day after tomorrow is an open question, of course, which uh, uh, was... Uh, admirably summed up by uh, Jean Monnet when he said, I don't know what the European institution would be in the long run because it will depend on the new future changes that today's changes will induce. And in any case, of course, this is history, and history depends on the people. 
and uh, we uh, depend, of course, as uh, should always be the rule in our democracies on the decision of the people. But today, we have a lot of hard work to do, and we trust that a good lesson to be drawn from the present uh, first 12 years of the euro on the one hand, and crisis on the other hand, is certainly to improve governance. Thank you for your attention. Well, <clears throat> first of all, Jean-Claude, I'd like to thank you very much for your, for your comments, and we're also very grateful that you're willing to take a number of questions. And um, I would last, like that those who ask a question should identify themselves or their and their institution if they come from one, and we can engage, I think, then, therefore for some time with the very important issues which have been raised in the course of the excellent speech uh, and lecture which we've just received. Um, so uh, there, is, there are stewards, I think, on either side with microphones. May I have the first question, non-press, I should say, questions? Yes, please. My name is Andreas Kutras, not affiliated. Uh, Mr. the balance sheet of the ECB consists of about 135 billion of covered bonds and 75 of which are Greek bonds, Irish and Portuguese. 342 billion of bonds, which are other assets, and 452 billion of repurchase agreements of Greek bonds purchased or repurchased and Irish bonds. How do you respond to those who say that you have created the largest bad bank in Europe? That's an easy starting question. <laughs> Sympathetically delivered. Uh, Jean-Claude. I would only say that we have our own collateral framework and we apply our collateral framework. That is uh, the rule that uh, we have, and I said very, very clearly recently, uh, to make the thing very, very clear, that we will continue to apply our rules. I told that to uh, all governments concerned, very, very clearly. Now, you have also to accept that we have rules that we have to apply, and we are the central banks, the central bank of the 17 countries. So you cannot look at us as if we were the central bank of one or two countries with other countries being out of, the, uh, of our space. So again, we have our rules, they are public. Uh, we have in considerably increased our, uh, uh, I would say, collateral framework rules in order to take into account uh, various situations and we continue to apply our rules with uh, the appropriate uh, uh, diligence and force. And we will continue to do that. And that is a message that uh, came, I think, clearly to the governments of Europe. Thank you. Next question, please. Yes, could I have this gentleman here in the fourth row from the top? Uh, Mr. Trichet, thank you for your lecture and uh, interesting address. Um, Dimitri just recently graduated. Uh, my question is uh, regarding your uh, last address about the reforms in the European economic area. Um, how do you see the role of uh, IMF in these uh, uh, reforms, how they might facilitate? And uh, would you probably uh, say from your opinion that uh, UK has a bit uh, different views in the IMF on the way the reforms should go in the euro area? Thank you. 
I don't see any difference between the 27 on that particular point. Uh, what I have mentioned, of course, is what do you do to prevent situation where you are in a very, very bad shape and you have to uh, have recourse both to the IMF and uh, to the IMF conditionality and to Europe and to the European conditionality. That is clearly part of the scheme which is applied when you are in major difficulty. And now we, we see how the, this concept uh, functions and how you combine the conditionality of the IMF, the conditionality of the European, and uh, the uh, uh, financing of the IMF and the financing of the European to finance the adjustment which is necessary. But the idea of the governance quantum leap is that to avoid uh, to be placed in this situation, which is, by the way, extremely unusual for advanced economy, and is also an indication that what we have to cope with in the present uh, episode is the challenging on the signature of the advanced economy themselves. What we have to cope with is not only, in my opinion, a European problem, but a global problem, which is you know, due to the fact that the crisis has revealed certain uh, uh, weaknesses in the overall strategy of the advanced economy themselves and they, that they have to correct. Thank you. Yes, second row. Alan Brown from Schroeder's. Uh, could you comment on the current debate about um, the need for risk sharing and the possibility of debt restructuring in a country such as Greece, where there seems to be a difference between the position of the ECB and at least some parts of the uh, uh, political commentary? So we have a, a position which is very simple. We say, and again, it's an advice to the government because we do not decide. The ECB does not decide. The ECB says, avoid what would be a compulsory concept. It has to be, in our opinion, a voluntary concept. Second, avoid whatever would trigger a credit event avoid whatever would trigger a selective default or a default. This is as simple as that. This is our message for governments. And as I said, in any case, we will take ourselves the appropriate decisions to take into account the decision which would have been taken by the governments. But our uh, advice is very clear. It is certainly an advice which is also enlightened by our own diagnosis on the fact that this is these are phenomena that have a euro area component, a European Union component, and a global component, again, because our analysis is that we have, after the shock of the crisis, as you can see very easily where you look at the rest of the world, a challenge for the signature of the advanced economy themselves. Third row from the bottom from the bottom, going up. That means you come down, thanks. <laughs> uh, Zane Sufi from uh, Birkbeck College, uh, undergraduate student, just graduated actually. Uh, <laughs> Bravo. Well, well done. <laughs> uh, 
Mr. Trichet, I'd like to ask you, uh, you've highlighted in your lecture that the importance of having robust tools, the ECB having robust tools in its armory, and you've suggested, for example, automatic sanctions. But between now until that is realized, what would be the implications of a member state un unanimously leaving the uh, EMU? In other words, what will be the implications on the euro if a member state decides to leave the EMU between now until your aspiration is realized? Thank you. i take one or two questions this time. Yeah. Can I take another question? The third, second, third row down. Third row down, yes. Yes, you. My question, my question uh, to you is, um, how can you see the future of the euro as an ECB in f 10 years' time? That's another easy question. Can we? <laughs> yes, second from the back, yeah. Uh, Jens Frederik Olta, I'm an LSE student in economic history. Um, congratulations on winning the Charlemagne Prize uh, last week, I think. Uh, in your acceptance speech, you mentioned um, the need for a European or EU finance ministry. Um, and I just wonder if, if you don't turn the EU into a fully-fledged fiscal union, will a European or EU finance ministry have any credibility or clout? Thanks. Would you like to take those yeah, three? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let me be very clear on the governance. We are not responsible for the governance I mentioned. We are responsible for delivering price stability to 331 million people. That's our responsibility. We have delivered price stability to 331 million people better than it's been done over the last 50 years. That was not absolutely obvious, frankly speaking, in the eyes of the observers, analysts, economists, ex ante. But these are not words, these are deeds and track records. And I can say that in Berlin without anybody being challenging what I say. After 12 years, we have delivered price stability in line with our definition. And our definition was designed from the very beginning, ex ante. So we gave the, the yardstick and uh, we asked everybody to judge us according to what we would deliver. We are observing that Governance has not been up to what was decided ex ante, and I mentioned clearly uh, the, uh, I would say, adventures of the Stability and Growth Pact and the fact that at the time it was weakened, that at the time the spirit also of the pact was weakened. We have also to draw all the lessons from what has been observed uh, until now. And as all other advanced economy without exception, and I can uh, say that, perhaps with the exception of Canada, perhaps with the exception of one or two other advanced economies which proved to be extraordinarily resilient in the crisis. But all others that I have mentioned have to review their own governance because clearly they put themselves in a situation which is not easy. So what we have to do in our opinion, but again, it's not our responsibility, it is the message that we have for the European institution and of course, for the uh, governments concerned. Um, we, 
so I responded to the first question on uh, the tools and governance on the leaving the euro uh, it is not the working assumption of any of the country I know and of any of course of the members of uh, of uh, the euro area it is not my working assumption by the way it is not in the treaty um, What we'll have in 10 years' time, I would say in 10 years' time, as the market is trusting, you will have a euro which will have maintained its value over the next 10 years' time exactly as it has maintained its value over the first 12 years. It is what uh, I can extract from the inflation expectations. To the extent that it is our own primary mandate, it is, of course, something which we consider extremely important. I was eloquent enough to say that uh, we consider that it is a symmetric position. We are protecting ourselves against the risk of materialization of inflation and also against the risk of materialization of deflation. And uh, that's, again, the reason why we uh, consider it so important to solidly anchor inflation expectations. I was speaking of tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, and I'm back, I think, to the last question on the uh, ministry. I mentioned in the Aachen uh, speech, again, today, I was, I think, clear on today and what we are asking to have from now on a reinforced stability and growth pact. And I would say very, very importantly reinforced and a new pillar, which would be the surveillance of competitive indicators and of imbalances inside the euro area, of course, complemented by all what has been done in the domain of the financial sector itself. Uh, the day after tomorrow, I see the European inventing a new concept of confederation with sovereign states, which has no precedent. We would not, certainly not apply any model that exists, in my opinion, exactly as we have invented in the past new concepts. The concept of democracy, for instance, was invented uh, in, in, uh, in Europe, as you know better than anybody. And we will see. Uh, in any case, it is in the hands of the people of Europe. I mentioned that it was not something which was unthinkable. But on this ministry, you might remember, I mentioned three major responsibilities. And one was the surveillance, monitoring uh, the surveillance, uh, including with the capacity of imposing decisions to countries that would be in a difficult situation. I mentioned also the uh, uh, necessity to have a real, completely united single market of the financial services. And I mentioned the representation in the international institutions. That the three points I have mentioned for uh, the day after tomorrow. Um, again, this is History. We, we, I'm speaking of a historical endeavor which started 60 years ago. Nobody 60 years ago would think that we would be at the present state of the European construction. And 
of course, the historical endeavor is not finished, and we have permanently, if I may, uh, to rely upon our democracies to uh, draw the lessons from what has been observed historically, and also the shocks and the changes in the rest of the world that uh, we have to cope with. In the London School of Economics, where we are, <laughs> we, we have the, the entire world, which is vibrant, uh, uh, you know, better than anybody, of course, what means the structural changes that are uh, at stake at the global level. Next question, please. We'll take somebody up here. This gentleman over here, third row up. We'd better, we'd better go over to this side. <laughs> I'll come back to you, I promise. <laughs> one question here, and then we'll come back to you. Far ahead. OK, thank you. Uh, my name is Gerard. I'm a student here at the LSE. And um, <clears throat> my question is like connected to yeah, the, the states that are now, the member states of the MU that are now in, uh, in trouble. Uh, concerning especially, I guess, Greece, but also Ireland and, uh, and Portugal, without their own, in, own monetary uh, possibilities, how do you see they get out of these, these difficulties? Uh, because structural change isn't easy. It has to come pure from, uh, from economic growth, pure from output. Uh, yeah, do you have any comments on that? Just take, I'll take the, I'll go back to Spain. Okay. <laughs> Thank Spain, you. Yeah. Uh, I would like just to, to ask you to comment about the concrete situation in Spain. If do you think that uh, it will be finally to be rescued, and if you think also that uh, the European Union or the IMF has has enough capacity just to rescue a country like Spain? Thank you very much. We have to let the odd professor in. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Ian Beck from LSE. Mr. Trichet, you described in detail the the very frenetic changes in economic governance of the last year. But that prompts a couple of questions. First, do you think there's something missing? Second, is there something missing include euro bonds? And third, under what circumstances can you see a French finance minister signing a cheque in payment for sanctions? I think I'll rule the last question out of order and we'll, we'll neutralize it. Um, I, could you take whichever of those questions you would like to take and omit any which you would like to omit? <laughs> but, uh, could you repeat the last question? <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that you didn't hear. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I will respond to the last question first. <laughs> When I was myself in my previous uh, position, or even in the previous position, before my previous position, namely <laughs> under Secretary of the Treasury, I had to go to the French Constitutional Court and I was asked the same question. I was asked, how is it possible when you are merging your currency, namely the franc, 
with other currencies in Europe, that on top of that, which is uh, something which is, of course, uh, uh, very important. By the way, uh, in the, we had to change in France the French constitution of the Fifth Republic to permit this transmission of, uh, of uh, monetary sovereignty to a multinational institution, independent institution. But on top of that, you are asking us to accept that there would be fines that could be imposed by the peers on a request of the Commission to uh, any country. How is it possible and how can we accept that? And I explained that, of course, that particular country, which you call France, had to be accepted that because, uh, as all others, because when you shared a single currency, you had a level of interdependency which was considerable and bad behavior by some could hamper the others. Uh, I have to say that we are learning by doing that it was for real. Uh, and uh, uh, I uh, have to say that the Constitutional Court accepted the reasoning. And it was voted by the French uh, people not by a minister of finance, but by the French people. Now, now let me go uh, rapidly to the other questions. Uh, again, <laughs> we are responsible in the ECB governing council for anchoring solidly price stability, delivering price stability, anchoring the inflation expectations, and through that, being an anchor of stability and confidence for an entire continent. We trust that it is the duty we were given, and we try and we do all what we can to deliver. I trust that, particularly in the present circumstances, the fact that we are a credible anchor of stability and confidence is good, not only because uh, confidence of the household is essential, confidence of the uh, economic agents is essential, but also because in anchoring inflation expectations, we are also permitting medium and long-term market interest rates to incorporate a low level of uh, future inflation, which is, of course, better than the contrary for uh, the uh, financial environment, for sustainable growth for the medium term, and for job creation. That's our job. Now. You are asking me a lot of questions which I fully accept because we are giving ourselves advices to those who will have to take the decision on the countries that uh, did not behave properly in the past and have to correct and adjust now, I would only say, they have to adjust fully to apply and implement the adjustment program which have been approved by the international community and by the European, and this is the rule of the game. I will not respond to any particular country. We, we have three countries that are under program. For the others, I have the same message for all. And I would say the same message for all, namely be ahead of the curve in terms of your own fiscal policies, your own structural policies, your own caring for your competitiveness is a message for certainly all the euro area countries, without any exception, perhaps for all European countries, and certainly for all advanced economies, but a few. Because again, all advanced economies have to reflect upon the relative weaknesses 
that have been revealed by this incredible, incredible X-ray picture that was, uh, you know, the consequence of the worst crisis since World War II. Could have been the worst since World War One. I uh, have, I, I don't think uh, that for uh, the other question I would, uh, we are not in favor at the moment I'm speaking uh, of euro bonds. Um, I think I responded to questions. Okay. This row here, number across here, yes. Hi, I'm Percy Martins, XLSE. I just want to pick on something you said in this session. Um, you said you could only advise, and I understand your hands are tied to a large extent, and it's up to the governments to take your advice or not. Uh, you talked about no, the ECB. our hands are not tied. I mean, we are uh, we have our responsibility, and uh, well, let's say your hands are partly tied. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> All right, let's disagree with that. Let's carry on. In any case, um, you I mean, we do not change. want to substitute in any respect to governments. We call all institutions to be up to their responsibility, to have a sense of direction, and we don't, do not want, and we should not substitute to responsibilities that have to be exerted by others. No, I appreciate that. Uh, in terms of the ECB, you went on to say that you don't want to go down the compulsory route. This is with regard to the questions on Greece. You don't want to go down the credit event route, and you don't want to go down the selective default route, all understandably so. But what, God forbid, if you did go down one of those routes? Can you take me through the consequences of going down each of those routes? Or give me some color and flavor on them? I, I think I'm going to rule that almost out of order completely, even before the president tries to answer it, because it's so complicated. But if you, it, it, we would be here forever, and we were meant to finish at a quarter past three. So if you'd like to take any part of it, president, but um, I leave it no, to you. <coughs> I would only say that uh, to the extent I mentioned that we were in presence of uh, a systemic aspect of the situation, I think that our advice uh, uh, speaks by itself. And in any case, it is a very strong advice to those who are taking the decisions. I'm going to take one final question. This gentleman has had his hand up for a long time. I'm sorry there are so many people who would like to ask a question that I won't be able to reach. Hi, uh, my name is Yusuf from uh, Central Banking Publications. Um, I found it very interesting how you made the comparison between the Euro area, diverse, diverse Euro area economies and the US as almost like an excuse of how you know, these different economies can work together under a single interest rate monetary policy. Um, but aren't you forgetting that I mean, the US economy is not doing very well, that the, um, the labor market's far more flexible geographically, and, um, and, and that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a different economy. And um, I mean, don't you, don't you worry that perhaps if you, your solution to this through <coughs> governance and structural reform might in any way squeeze real wages in the euro area and lead to political unrest? The fact that all advanced economies have their problem, I fully agree. And uh, the fact that uh, the crisis in particular, and also uh, all what has happened since uh, World War II, which has been more or less uh, revealed by the crisis, is something which calls for all of us, without any exception, to try to improve. I fully agree with you. And I didn't say that we had a role model. On the contrary, I said that we probably had to invent in the long run something which uh, uh, would be new. But as regards the present situation, again, my main message was 
we probably, when you have a single market with a single currency of that dimension, you have to deal with diversity, with what some would say heterogeneity. I prefer the word diversity because it seems that it is a normal feature of such vast economy. And there you have to manage that. <coughs> the US has the advantage of having uh, an institutional framework which provides for management of that diversity, which doesn't mean that everything goes well and so forth, but it's not by, to me, of course, to criticize the U.S. in any respect. But again, we have to be as lucid as possible on our own diagnosis. And our own diagnosis is that we have to improve governance. Uh, I trust that if we improve governance in the way we are suggesting, and we are on record for that, not only in this lecture, of course, but we have a very, very clear position which has been communicated to those who will take the decision. We trust that we would improve sustainable growth and sustainable job creation in Europe. And uh, I would say overall prosperity in a long-run perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, um, it falls upon me now to bring this session to a conclusion. Very briefly, let me say that there is no more deserving awardee of the Char Charlemagne Prize than the speaker that we've heard today. We've had since the beginning of the European project a number of major figures from France who have contributed greatly, starting with Jean Monnet, who has been quoted followed by others, and also in the early days, Schumann, of course, and Jacques Delors more recently. But there is no doubt in my mind that we have heard one such figure here today who has provided leadership when leadership was not always evident everywhere. He has provided independence, and he has provided a vision of where Europe is going, which is badly needed and which is particularly important at this time. And we have been very fortunate today in being present to listen to him speaking with great frankness about a difficult time which he is trying to manage. And his giving of his time to LSE is greatly appreciated. I would ask now that you remain uh, seated until he, he leaves the hall, and I would ask you also to signify your appreciation for what he has said in the usual way.